0: This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live Market Watch Edition. My name is Andrew Ketchner and I'm a reporter with MarketWatch, where my beat includes taxes. And it's that time again, tax season. Today with me is Michael Greenwald, uh, tax partner at Markham. Uh, Welcome, Mike. Thanks for being here. Happy to be here, Andy. We're going to talk tax policy, the filing season. Let's start with some tax basics, because it's almost April, and April happens to be financial literacy month. I think a lot of us can learn can stand to learn more about taxes and and i know there's so much more that i can learn um so you know it seems like taxes add some extra angst around this time of year people want the biggest refund possible they don't want to owe they don't want to hear from the irs about making a mistake but i think there's it also has to do with the tax code's complexity um so like why are taxes so complicated
1: There's a number of reasons, but one of the principal reasons is that in this country, we use our internal revenue code to create public policy. Uh, We use it to encourage, right now, uh, investment in uh, semiconductors or electric vehicles or any one of a number of things. So we have a tax code that's written both to generate revenue to support the government as well as to support whatever public policy initiatives are out there. And that lends greater complexity to it. Then, on top of that, remember, we've got a country of 300 somewhat million people. We have what we know as a voluntary tax system. That, you know, nobody comes to your door uh, with, a, with a handout and says, you know, give us your share of income taxes. You know, we have a lot of rules and regulations designed to help individuals comply voluntarily. Uh, with the tax code. And with that comes uh, a lot of instructions written in the form of legislation, and legislation is not written for the common reader. So is complexity a good thing,
0: a bad thing, um, or maybe it, it all depends? And, and and for the pandemic, for these past couple years, what does that mean for the complexity of the tax code?
1: Well, we used the tax code extensively during the pandemic to try to support small businesses, to create loans uh, for various specific industries, uh, to create uh, credit programs, to support continued employment. Uh, so anyone with a small business had tremendous additional complexity thrown at them. Uh, anyone who works on in the gig industry uh we, we refer to people have side businesses have had tremendous additional filing responsibilities as the government tries to help and it you know it wants to know that it, the help is being used appropriately and what that requires is some sort of accountability some sort of reporting uh it's been it's been a good couple of years for accountants i won't deny that uh, i don't think there's an accounting firm in the country who's revenue suffered during the pandemic. Uh, On the other hand, uh, there's been a lot of unscrupulous behavior. I mean, if you listen to the radio, uh, you'll hear ads for people touting how you can get thousands of dollars from the government in tax credits and all you need to do is call them. And that's currently a a major uh, point of emphasis for the IRS in terms of uh, their what they're looking for. It's on their dirty dozen. It's number one on their dirty dozen of tax scams. So, uh, you know, complexity comes with the idea that we use our tax code for more than just, you know, supporting the army and the Navy and uh, and Congress.
0: You know, can, can I stick with this point just for one second because sure. I happen to listen to sports radio a lot. Um, and and I, I hear these ads too, What 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 is, in in and quickly, I mean, is this in regards to the employee tension retention credit?
1: So, so part of what happened during the pandemic was that Congress created an employee retention tax credit. The idea was to take money that would otherwise have been used to fund payroll taxes and give it back to smaller employers so that they could keep their employees on payroll as opposed to having them go on to, Uh, unemployment. Unemployment is a very inefficient way for the government to support people uh, who can't find jobs. Uh, It requires a lot of labor. This essentially said to the employers, we'll just give you back the money that you would have paid in payroll taxes if you just keep your people on the job. Very efficient little system. And the, the program was designed essentially for employers whose revenues declined in a year-over-year year comparison. But there was also this little twist. There were some businesses that simply couldn't operate, but their revenues didn't necessarily go down for various reasons. They couldn't operate because the government said they couldn't operate. It's, it's a little oxymoronic. It's hard to imagine that you couldn't do business, but your revenues didn't decline. But nevertheless, Congress was trying to look out for in some very hastily written laws, look out for employers who might have fallen between the cracks, and that's what's being exploited, because essentially a lot of businesses were shut down. You know, if your if your employees couldn't get to work because they couldn't ride public transportation, or you know, there were only three people allowed in the elevator in your office building, you know, so essentially there were a lot of businesses that might meet that test, and and. The advertisements you hear are aimed at trying to find businesses that might qualify. Now some of them are very legitimate. Some of them are really, you know, reputable companies looking to help uh, businesses that were adversely affected get the money that Congress intended for them to have some of it is being abused. And that happens all the time. Whenever the government creates a program, there are people who are honestly eligible for it. There are advisors who are honestly advising them. And then there are people who are looking to game the system. So it's it's a buyer beware thing. But it's unusual for us. We're not used to seeing advertising for tax credits. We're, We're used to seeing tax and H and R Block and people like that advertise, which is good because there are people who need help preparing their tax returns, and these are again reputable companies providing a valuable service, helping taxpayers comply with what's essentially a voluntary tax system. So, in the name of
0: you know clearing up confusion and imparting understanding, um, let's let, let you know taxes are your career, um, but what what are some tips and perspectives that you could give to individuals to help them understand taxes better? If there's like maybe one, one, one thing, or one or two things that you feel like people should know about taxes to help them understand it a little bit better, what
1: would well, that first, be? First of all, don't be afraid. You know, there. are this, we're not talking about something that's incomprehensible. It's just a little dense. But it's, you know, I would say that it, to me, I have difficulty with IKEA manuals. I'm not really good at stick figures putting furniture together. You know, fortunately, my wife is great at that, so we don't have a problem in our household. But there are every tax form comes with instructions, and there are people in the IRS who spend all year just writing those instructions. And there are people at the state level uh, in each of the states and who spend all year just writing the instructions. So one of the things is if you're doing your own taxes, even if you're doing them online or using a TurboTax or a program like that, get the forms. They're available online. You can Google them. Uh, Literally you can Google them. We used to have to buy the forms, but you can Google them now and you can read the instructions and, and they're a little technical. But if you read the instructions, you can get an idea of how the forms should be filled out. So that's one way of learning sort of a cliffs notes version of the tax code, at least as far as it relates to your particular situation. You know, then there's the, the advice that we always give people who are doing their own returns. Check your math. The, the single biggest reason that people Get contacted by the IRS is math errors, and it goes back to what your high school teacher told you before you turn in your work. You know, ch- <laughs> check your calculations. You know, I hate to I hate to put it that simply, but it's really true. That's the single biggest cause of people getting notices from the IRS. The second biggest reason people get notices from the IRS is because they got a form from somebody else. They got a ten ninety nine from a bank or a brokerage firm or Anything, you know, where they're getting information from some investment that they made and whatever they entered into the tax program that they're using doesn't match. They might have transposed a number or they might have left a form out entirely. The IRS matches these things electronically. There's not even a person who has to go look at it. It's just a computer matching these, these things and it will automatically generate a notice. So that's the second biggest reason why people get notices. And again, it goes back to checking your work. You know, when when we do a return for a client, we typically have somebody prepare it, we have somebody review it, and then somebody at my level will review it again. So there's three people at least looking and touching every return, sometimes more if it's really complicated. So that's the, like the biggest advice I can give to people who prepare their own returns is really the most mundane thing you can ever tell anybody, which is check your work. Now, the past couple of years has been a really bad time to get a notice from the IRS, not because they're being particularly more difficult or because they're, you know, auditing more returns or because they're, you know, really coming down hard on taxpayers. No, it's just the opposite. It's because if you get a notice and you want to reply to it, generally there's nobody at the other end who has the time to read it. And so there have been trailer loads. Remember the IRS was affected by the pandemic too. There weren't people going into offices. There were trailer loads of paper filed returns and paper correspondence that hadn't even been moved into the building for somebody to read. The IRS tells us now that everything's been moved into the building so that all the paper isn't still sitting outside on a trailer someplace. But if you get a notice from the IRS and you reply to it, you might find that you get a second notice. You say, wait a second, I answered them. Why aren't they responding to it? And we have the same frustration. We're getting, the, we deal with the same issue. We're, t- we're writing to the same people. So it's not like we have some special back channel that that we get to work with because we have you know, we're CPAs. we're CPAs. Deal- it's one IRS applies to everybody equally. You get second notices, you get third notices. And it's because they don't have the personnel and they've had limitations on how quickly they can process correspondence.
0: You mentioned in investments. Um, and to kind of keep it with the financial literacy tack for a moment. Um, How about investors? If I'm an investor, what are things that I should understand about the tax code um, to help me in my portfolio and, you know, tax efficiency when I'm making my decisions?
1: Well, obviously, different investments carry different tax treatment. We have, you have interest, you have dividends, you have capital gains, you can have tax exempt interest that you get from investing, for example, in municipal bonds, uh, one of the things that uh, we always recommend to clients is that they look at the statements that get mailed to them or get emailed to them every month, uh, and they look at what income has been reported, uh, make sure that what they're reporting is, that what the reporting is that they're getting is correct. Look at what the implications are along the way. If you start to see that uh, you're generating a lot of capital losses. There's limitations on the ability to deduct capital losses. If you don't have capital gains, uh, your losses for the year are limited to $3,000. So you might have you know tens of thousands of dollars of capital losses, but if you don't have capital gains to offset it, you're only going to be able to deduct $3,000 in the current year. It'll carry forward, but at $3,000 a year, it could take a while to use it up, depending upon the dollar amount of the loss. So again, if you see that that's happening, or if you see that you have investments that are going down and others that are going up, you might want to talk to your broker about harvesting losses so that you can harvest some of your gains and not pay tax on it. So the bigger your portfolio, the more actively you want to manage it. But then also at the end of the year, when you get the year end statement, it's very important to look at that and make sure that everything is reported accurately because Shortly thereafter, you're going to get a 1099 form from your broker that reports all of the activity, the interest, the dividends, the capital gains and losses, anything that happened in your brokerage account during the year. The IRS is also getting a copy of that. That's one of the things that gets electronically matched to your return. And if there are errors in it, it's going to be difficult, depending upon the brokerage firm, to get them to quickly issue a corrected form. So you want to make sure that whatever, and 99.9% of the time, the 1099s are correct. You don't want to be the one-tenth of 1%, because then you're dealing with all kinds of issues. You've got the IRS that has incorrect information. You don't necessarily want to report that on your return because it might result in more tax, but you also don't want to get a notice from them that the information uh, doesn't match. Uh, It's one of many reasons why we tell taxpayers to put their returns on extension. Uh, You know, one of the questions we always get, we get every year from a handful of clients is, uh, if I put my return on extension, doesn't that mean the IRS is automatically going to examine my return? I'm automatically going to get audited. Isn't that a trigger? The answer is no. I I put my return on extension every year because I just don't have the patience to deal with it by the time it's due in April uh, and also most of the time uh, I don't have all the information that I really need. So I'll put my return on extension. It's, And I, I say this hesitantly, it's not automatically a trigger for examination. I don't want to find out that the IRS is listening. They've decided to look at my return, but, but it's not, that's not one of the criteria An extension is automatic. You're entitled to it. It doesn't extend the time to pay your taxes. It just extends the time to file your return. That's a very important distinction. Make sure whatever your estimated taxes doesn't have to be hundred percent precise, 90%, 95% good enough. Make sure your taxes are paid on time, but there's no harm in getting an extension. If you think the information you have is incomplete or inaccurate, it's much more important to file a return that's complete and accurate the first time. Got it. Um, A reminder to everyone who is listening,
0: please feel free to send in your questions in the Q&A, and hopefully we can get to them. Um, Let's skip ahead. We're we're starting to talk about the IRS and just dealing with the IRS now. The backstory is, is over the summer, um, the Congress authorized 80 billion over a decade to the IRS, and there was much heated debate um, from Republicans, and um, not one Republican voted for it. And But Democrats said this was a much needed investment in the IRS. Um, and the IRS is, I mean, part, one of the reasons, one of the problems has been you, you couldn't get anyone on the phone, and you know this much better than I. But what's going on this season so far? What have you been hearing um, from the people you work with? Um, is the IRS, is is it getting any easier to um Get through to someone on the phone to just kind of work through problems compared to recent years.
1: It's it's getting better. Um, they're not there yet, and they haven't. They don't have the 80 billion in their pocket, and and they haven't spent it yet. Uh, it's it's getting better simply because, you know, again, they're eating through the backlog of of correspondence that built up, you know, during the pandemic. Uh, it. One of the things you have to understand about the IRS is that they've been underfunded as an agency going back over a decade, maybe more. Uh, there are technology improvements that should have been made that haven't been made. Uh, there are personnel who've retired who haven't been replaced because the funding wasn't there to replace them. Uh, you know, it's a bureaucracy like anything else. And it it depends upon people and, uh, and technology to run efficiently. And the goal of the $80 billion was really to bolster that there was a, 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 an equally important goal uh, from the Congress's standpoint when they passed it. And from the IRS's standpoint as an agency that they feel that they haven't had the resources to appropriately enforce the tax code. That they haven't had the resources to, uh, you know, examine returns that should be examined. You know, and I'm talking about, you know, people who have a W-2 and a couple of 1099s. They're talking about people who have, you know, substantial income uh, in the form of uh, pass-through investments from investment partnerships, or who have multiple trades or businesses, you know, that are producing very high levels of income. And they want to, you know, if you if you want to uh, justify spending money on an examination on auditing somebody, you want to know that you're getting back uh, a real return on that investment in the form of additional taxes. So the focus is obviously going to be on high net worth, on uh, partnerships, on those kinds of uh, you know sources of, of you know real tax revenue. Uh, that's, you know, I think where the emphasis was in the uh, in the objection to the $80 billion was that, you know, there was going to be an attack on the middle class. Uh, And and the middle class pays a lot more in taxes because the middle class is bigger. I mean, there's just more people in it. But if you look at any individual return, there's not much you can wring out of it in the form Mm -hmm. of additional taxes. You know, one of the things that that one of the questions I always get is, you know, I want to get a bigger refund. Well, the answer is no, you really don't want to get a big refund because a big refund means that you made an interest-free loan to the government all year and they're not going to send you a thank you note. You know, they will send you your check, but they're not going to uh, say, thanks for the use of the money, you know, we really appreciate it. Can you do it again next year? Uh, You know, the, the goal is to have paid just the right amount of taxes. And, and own nothing with your return, and, and that's really, you know, in our eyes, the best return. And that also means that, you know, examining returns like that isn't going to be fruitful. You're going to spend, you know, a couple of weeks of an auditor's time. They're going to go through all of that. They're going to you're going to spend a couple of weeks of your time producing receipts and 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 other documents to support what's in the return. And at the end of the day, the return on investment is going to be minimal. I think the IRS knows this, and so they're going to go where the money is. So let's let's switch it to
0: from tax administration to tax policy, which seems you know just as contentious these days. Um, I'll set the scene, and I'll let you take it from there. But we're in divided government now. We have a presidential election coming in 2024. We have major portions of the. Um, Trump administration tax cuts that are expiring at uh, the end of 2025. What are the chance of any new tax laws coming in this, uh, this year, 2024 or
1: 2025? So when you say new tax law, you have to break it into a couple of buckets. There's the individual bucket and the business bucket. A few, headaches in the business bucket that uh, are results that have come home to roost now, uh, that really don't get any play in the general press because they're not relevant to most people. They're talking about things like the treatment of research and experimentation expenses or how quickly you depreciate uh, certain types of equipment. Uh, how uh, automobile dealerships account for the cars that they sell. I mean, these are business and really important questions for businesses or for certain businesses, but completely irrelevant to most people. And therefore they're not going to show up, you know, in, in most discussions, but those things are top of mind for Congress and still are, and have been for the last two years, because they're, there are lobbyists out there who are spending a lot of time and a lot of their clients' money talking to congressmen about how we need to fix those things that changed by the tax cuts in 2017 uh, and are now negatively affecting businesses. So that's one set of tax issues and some of those might get dealt with and they might get dealt with by attaching them to uh, the debt ceiling bill. Or more arcanely, things like that typically get in, get attached to bills that have to be passed. So we have a, a, a an FAA. This is really arcane. We can go down a real deep rabbit hole here, but the FAA reauthorization bill is up in July. Normally, that's a non-controversial bill, but with all of the close calls that have happened lately, with potential aircraft crashes, or with incidents on airplanes, that bill's going to get a lot of attention. And so some of these business tax issues might be dealt with in that bill. So put that to one side. Now, on the other side, you have the president's budget proposal, uh, which has a wish list of things. Uh, And I say wish list because like most of the wishes we make on our birthday cakes it is not coming true i've been doing this a long time presidents generally submit a budget every year it generally includes everything that they think is policy that they want to enact and it very rarely if ever winds up being enacted so i think you can you can safely say that most of the things in there aren't going to happen particularly in a divided congress but we do know that there's a tremendous desire to uh, deal with the enhanced child tax credit. There's going to have to be some movement on that because there are things that the, uh, particularly the House Republicans, but even the Senate Republicans and some Senate Democrats want permitting reform. Uh, some other uh, you know business favorable non-tax items that can be traded off for that. The other thing to remember is that any tax changes essentially require uh, you know, revenue offsets. So if I'm going to enhance the child tax credit, unless it winds up in a bill that doesn't meet certain congressional test requirements, it's, if I'm going to you know, increase the deficit by a certain amount uh, by adding that credit, then I need to come up with uh, additional revenues to offset it. Uh, that's why there's these business problems now and in, in related to the Trump tax cuts. They were the pay-fors for the tax cuts and nobody ever thought they'd actually come into play and, and, and now they are. So. Uh,
0: Let's stick with policy, and I'm going to start to um, throw some uh, reader, uh, listener questions at you, because uh, a lot of people are curious about policies and what the the future holds and and, and the the best clues we could get at uh, at things. Uh, We have Charles who is asking, would taxing um, big, large taxpayers, um, would that solve the deficit?
1: (laughs) Well, you start with the presumption that the deficit has to be solved. You know, the, the, the idea that we have deficit spending, we, as a, the, the printing money is something the government can do, whether or not that causes inflation is something else, but borrowing money. Remember that the whole world wants to lend us money. We are the, the only safe investment in the entire world tr- is is treasury bonds. So everybody wants to lend us money. We generally get the most favorable interest rates. Uh, Yes, you know, people say, well, we don't want our grandchildren paying for our spending. Well, you know, that's open to debate among economists. Simply raising taxes on the wealthy will not pay off the deficit. It will not eliminate the deficit. If you really want to eliminate the deficit, you'd have to slash government spending by tremendous amounts. Some people say up to 70% across all spending uh, with the exception of social security and Medicare. Uh, so that would mean the army, that would mean public works, that would mean everything that the government does. Uh, and so you have to ask yourself a question, is that a good idea? But you also have to deal with the, the rather important economic debate is what's the right size of the deficit? Now, as, as a matter of, of policy, do you think that wealthy people should pay more taxes? That's that's a political question, more so than a revenue question. So and, and here's another
0: one. This one is from William, and it's also about uh, tax obligations of, of the very rich. Do you believe that taxing wealth and unrealized capital gains is inevitable, either at the federal or the state level?
1: It's going to be very difficult to do at the state level. You know, if if I'm and you see what's happening in states like California and New York, where people are moving to states like Florida and and Texas, you know, because of the different tax systems in those states. When they get there, they may haven't you know think about it. If you move enough people from New York, enough liberals from New York and California to Florida and Texas, what happens to whether those are red states or blue states? So that's that's going to be interesting to see, but. At the federal level, you have a constitutional issue, you know, whether you can tax uh, income that's not been earned, mm-hmm. and and whether or not that's that violates the uh, the appropriation clauses, whether that violates the taxation clauses of the uh, of the Constitution, you know, remains to be seen. So, uh, do I think it's inevitable? No, um, do I think it's possible? Yeah, but I think there'd be a lot of a lot of uh, litigation before we got it all the way through.
0: How, speaking of possibilities, uh, we have a question from Elizabeth um on the possibilities of a hefty increase and in, and in, in Elizabeth is right, hefty increase on capital gains um and actually also estate taxes in the recently proposed budget. And as a refresher to everyone, Um, it's 20% now. That would be the top capital gains rate. What Biden wants, uh, President Joe Biden wants would be for millionaires and above for that capital gains rate to become uh, 39.6% and and also raising the top marginal rate to that number too. But what's what's the chance that capital gains uh, would get? And the
1: current Congress, the chance is zero. Uh, but one of the things you have to remember, and if, you know, history, the arc of history is very long, you know, capital gains rates right now are at the lowest that they've ever been, uh, but they have been as high as the ordinary income rates. You know, that's what President Biden is proposing for everybody. You know, they, they were, we didn't have a, a differential rate for capital gains at one point. Uh, I believe it was in the Reagan administration, in fact. Uh, So, you know, when I talked at the beginning about uh, public policy and how we use the tax code, this one, this is one example. You know, we use the tax code right now to encourage investment. And so, therefore, capital gains rates are lower, qualified dividends, the tax rate is lower. But, you know, that's not an example of the fact that somehow capital gains are more virtuous than than wages it's just a way of encouraging investment taking money out of savings and putting it into productive use and that's a public policy position not a tax position but in in the past we've had higher capital gains rates it could happen again as far as the estate tax goes again it's been all over the place you know it's it's just a question of what what the public policy is you
0: Know at, at the time, let's let's bring it uh, for, for our last question here. Let's bring it in a different direction, which is social security taxation. Um, will that be raised at all from the current thresholds? Uh, for singles, well, and-
1: the, the threshold goes up every year by inflation automatically. You know, so that's that's something that you can count on, it goes up every year. Uh, the uh, policy that there's a cap on it is really where the discussion is, you know, should there be uh, uh, should the cap be raised? Should it be raised for high net worth or high wage earners, you know, so that they pay more into the system. I think that's something that is going to be debated. And that's something that's possible that, that the uh, people who earn a lot of money might wind up contributing more into the system. Know, get rid of the cap uh, and or raise the cap so that there's more contributions. But and if you don't mind, this gives me an opportunity to pitch something that I think is very important for financial literacy. Uh, there is a website, SSA.gov, uh, where you can go and you can create a login and you can look at your social security history. I think it's very important, you know, especially for people who are self-employed or who have both a job and have a side gig uh, to go in and make sure that all of your eligible social secures have been reported. Because when you retire, your benefit is going to be determined by what's been contributed into the system by you and your employer, what wages have been reported. Take a time every year to check and make sure the numbers are right because when you go to retire, trying to fix it's going to be difficult.
0: That is that is news you can use. Um, there, there's so much more, but there's always so much more. But I, I, I think we will have to leave it there for now. Um, thank you, Mike, for joining us. And thank you, audience, for tuning in. Um, we hope you listen to our next episode tomorrow. Financial News' online editor, Penny Sukraj, talks to Jamie Fiore-Higgins, former Goldman Sachs manager, managing director and author of Bully Market, about calling out toxic culture in the workplace and why this matters for investors. Thank you for listening. Be well and have a nice day.